Great. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to see you all here for a special uh, Medicine Grand Rounds associated with the 18th annual Dartmouth Conference on Liver, Pancreas, and Biliary Disease, um, and also the Bob Simmons Memorial Lecture, um, honoring a cherished member of our faculty who you'll hear a little bit more about in just a few minutes. Um, first, um, I'm going to announce our CME code. For those of you in the room, it's posted on the uh, front and the side walls here, but for those watching from far away, um, the CME code for today is QVAE. So make sure you use that to get your credit. And, um, and as you all saw, we also have a Cookie Learn um, session today. So we have a trivia question, and we had a lot of really great answers um, to our question, which is about how to um, uh, help, your, help eat healthy meals with kids, help your kids choose healthy meals. And uh, we had a lot of, again, super answers, but the winner today is somebody whose child attended daycare with mine, so that's always nice, <laughs> Lisa Davini. <laughs> Are you here, Lisa? Ah, so you got to come up and get your prize. <laughs> um, and Lisa's answer was offer many options uh, and choices of fresh fruits and let them choose two items at the grocery store. So we have a um, recipe for ranch dressing, homemade ranch dressing, and some organic vegetables. Thank you. Nice job. <laughs> um, so I'm going to welcome Arifa Tourup to um, talk a little bit about Bob Simmons and introduce today's speaker. Arifa is a member of the section of uh, gastroenterology and hepatology. Um, good morning. I am uh, honored to be asked to do this introduction to our um, annual Dartmouth uh, conference on liver biliary disease that we've been having now for 18 years. Um, we have, de uh, have this lecture dedicated, dedicated to Robert Simmis, um, who was on our faculty for over 40 years and a very special person to me as he was my teacher and mentor and the person who um, got me to doing what I'm doing and being involved in liver disease, um, the start of it was with him. Um, he, as I said, was a faculty member here for 40 plus years, and he left a mark on the education of most of the members of my division and probably many, many members of the Department of Medicine as well. Um, I guess I have to forward it through this. You know how I forward the slides? Um, pardon me? The clicker doesn't work, but let's see. Maybe this one will. Let's see. Sorry. I was going to give you a little bit of background on, on Bob Simmis because some of the young faculty, I'm sure, don't know who he is. And I'm, where did you do? On this one? Okay. Um, so for me, it's... Um, Dr. It was always Dr. Simmis, although he, you know, continued to ask me to call him Bob as many years after I'd graduated. Um, so it's still hard for me to say Bob. We'll say he was um, born in 1938 in Newark, New Jersey. He's the second of four brothers, um, always a male-filled household um, from the beginning. He went to Holy Trinity High School and graduated in 1955, and we had lots of discussions about going to Catholic schools all of um, in his life. He um, initially went to pharmacy school and graduated from Rutgers School of Pharmacy in 1960, and his knowledge of pharmacy continued to um, 
um, help with all of his encyclopedic knowledge of medicine. He went to the Seton Hall uh, College of Medicine, which is now uh, part of Rutgers, and he graduated in 1965. As a medical student, he met Sheila, um, who was a nursing student at the time, and they married right after Bob graduated in 1965. And Sheila is a nurse and who also worked at uh, DHMC for many years. They moved to Boston um, after he graduated, and he did his internship and a one-year residency at Boston City Hospital from 1965 to 67. He then uh, went into the U.S. Air Force and was stationed in Ohio um, working as an internist, and as he would often joke, sometimes a psychiatrist as well. And then he came to Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital for his senior resident year in 1969, and he became Dartmouth's first gastroenterology fellow. And then from there, he went to Yale to study liver disease with Gerald Klatskin. Gerald Klatskin was one of the first world's hepatologists. And then after studying with Gerald Klatskin, he joined the clinical staff at Mary Hitchcock in 1972. And at that time, the members of the gastroenterology department were Maurice Kelly, Jack McCleary, and Tom Almy. He brought hepatology to the medical center um, as a new field. Um, he also was first to learn colonoscopy, and he taught all of his colleagues and started the colon cancer surveillance programs both here and at the White River VA. Um, those who know him know that family time was incredibly important to Bob, and he had um, four sons, um, Bobby who, Jr., who is a physician and a gastroenterologist, Andrew and Michael were his sons, and his time with them was most important. He also spent time with his colleagues and friends, and most people knew him well because of his wonderful sense of humor and his uh, caring personality. And these are some photos of him with those colleagues. He was an avid outdoorsman. He loved fly fishing. Um, he would take trips with his friends. And later in his career, there would be a fellow's trip uh, fly fishing um, that was uh, quite uh, memorable to all generally only the male fellows. <laughs> um, he loved being the teacher of students and learners at all levels, and he was particularly happy to participate in morbidity, mortality, and improvement conference. And those who were around will remember that he sat in the front row, and he uh, oh, almost always had figured out the problem about halfway through. Um, the conference. He taught the practice of clinicianship, and um, by that he won new uh, medicine like an encyclopedia, but he also taught us how to be good, caring doctors. His patients loved him. He was incredibly dedicated to them, and they continue to, those of few that I continue to follow still remember him well, and any time we mention his name, it is remembered with a lot of love. In December of 2013, he was posthumously awarded the Department of Medicine Chairs Award, and, which is presented to a faculty member demonstrating extraordinary engagement in multiple missions of patient care and academics. Um, and we are truly honored to um, continue in his memory this lecture that is given um, alternating in pancreas and in liver disease. Um, and with that, I'm going to go on to introduce our speaker for today. 
Um, so I'm going, I have a really, it's an honor, uh, honor for me to present uh, Tim Gardner, who was one of Bob's um, beloved fellows. And um, so it, it's just really appropriate that he's one of, he is the lecturer for today. Um, Dr. Simmons knew that Tim was going to be, um, do great things in his career when he invested his time in Tim's education, and he was absolutely right. Tim uh, received his undergraduate degree from Dartmouth College in 1995. This was followed by uh, his MD at the University of Connecticut. While he was a medical student there, um, he came to Dartmouth to do a GI uh, elective, and at that point we were lucky enough for him to have the spark of interest in GI, and he decided to do GI after that elective. Um, we were fortunate enough to recruit him as a resident at DHMC and then a chief medical resident following that, and he stayed here for his fellowship. And then, um, no one really knew such a thing existed, but he did a fellowship in clinical pancreatology um, at the Mayo Clinic um, after he finished his fellowship. And we were fortunate enough to secure him in coming back to DHMC, as I'm sure the Mayo Clinic would have snatched him up in a heartbeat had we not. And so he came back after he finished that fellowship. And I would say he probably holds a record in this institution as to how quickly someone obtained uh, NIH funding after starting as a junior faculty member. He first obtained funding to study endoscopic ultrasound in its use in uh, chronic pancreatitis. And he has since gone on to get funding in studying um, auto islet cell uh, transplantation after complete, complete pancreatectomy. And it's that subject that he'll talk about today. He has published extensively in numerous well-renowned journals, um, but he's probably, I think, most um, respected for his incredible mentorship of students, residents, and fellows. He has mentored countless uh, students and residents in their research and helped them to advance their careers. And I think it's in this area that Dr. Simmis would be most proud. Um, Tim has recently also become the GI Fellowship Program Director, and he's doing an incredible job with that. So I'm honored to present Tim Gardner. Uh, well, can you guys hear me okay? Okay, good. Um, well, Arfa, thank you. Um, and, it, you know, again, there's a lot of honors going around today, but it's an honor to see my colleagues here in front of me who, who mentored me, especially the three attendings I had on that elective sitting next to each other, Steve Stewart and Arfa. So, um, it's wonderful. I better do a good job here. Um, and, and I also want to thank, uh, obviously, Dr. Simmis. Um, you know, not a, I think those of us who've been around for a while remember Dr. Simmis quite well, and it's, it's wonderful to be able to, to mention his name and, and have his picture up there. I, I think um, not a week goes by in my, in my career that I don't remember something that he taught me, and I can tell you not a month goes by that we're not talking about some quote or some story, not all the time um, the most appropriate story, uh, remembering, remembering him, and um, he's really just a, a, still a huge part of my career and for many of us here. And uh, really, to me, the definition of a master educator is, is Bob Sinis. So um, it's really an honor to, to be here and to have Bobby, his son, here. So thank you so much for, for coming and, and listening. And I hope I do justice to, to his memory by, by, by giving this talk. Um, so without further ado, uh, we're going to talk about something that um, I think would be maybe dear to, dear to his heart, and that's uh, chronic pancreatitis and uh, auto islet cell transplant. Um, so let me just get this, this up here. And um, 
The title of my talk is um, the Dartmouth TPIAT Experience, How We Made a Difference in a, in a Hopeless Disease. And I think as you'll see as we go through this talk, um, how challenging this is for our patients, and you're going to hear, those of you who are spending the, the day with us, will hear a lot about this disease and, and, and how challenging it can be. And, and this is a talk, again, to see if, if we've, we've made a difference with this intervention. So here we go. So I want to present a few cases to start, to start. And these are all patients who I've seen uh, in my practice here at Dartmouth. And this is kind of a classic person. So this is a 16-year-old boy from, from southern New Hampshire who came up with his mother and had never had any medical problems until he was 11 years old. Um, was initially admitted to his local hospital with, with mild acute pancreatitis, and then had multiple attacks. And by multiple, I mean a lot. And in, just in 2013 alone, he was admitted 22 times to the hospital with acute pancreatitis. Um, as a result of this, he lost a lot of schooling. And by the time I met him when he was 16, I think he was in seventh grade. Um, and he was found before we met him to have a genetic defect, which was the cause of his pancreatitis and the CFTR gene. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and he'd been to every hospital provider you could imagine to try to get, to try to get help. And when I saw him, this was his medication list. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with these medications, this is absolutely incredible for anyone, let alone for a, uh, for a 16-year-old boy. And, and here's a picture of his CAT scan, and this is his pancreas here, which Nancy McNulty is going to talk to us about, about pancreas imaging. But this is a terrible-looking pancreas uh, for chronic pancreatitis. And his mom came, and she said, can you help my son? Okay, so this is, this is a patient, patient one. Our next patient was a patient we saw recently, actually earlier this year, who again came with chronic pancreatitis, and he was from central Indiana. Um, and uh, had chronic abdominal pain, was dependent on a feeding tube, could not eat. Uh, he was married, or excuse me, engaged, but unable to work. He had high opiate requirement. He, too, had genetic mutations, two genetic mutations, a CFTR mutation and a SPINK1 mutation. And interestingly, he had never been on a plane before, and uh, he flew out here. His local church raised money for him to fly from central Indiana to Dartmouth, because he knew about this program, which we're going to talk about. And he came to me, and he and his parents said to me, you are my last hope. Um, third patient was a patient with something called disconnected pancreatic duct syndrome, which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. And he's a 62-year-old, relatively local guy uh, from central Vermont. Uh, he'd had five recent, uh, he'd had a horrible attack of uh, a gallstone pancreatitis. Subsequently, had been admitted five more times for, for pancreatitis. He was now on opiates. He had a big dairy farm, as I said, in central Vermont. He was unable to work. This is a guy who hadn't missed a day of work his entire life. And he still had persistent left upper quadrant pain. Now he's getting borderline diabetes. And a CT scan, which I showed, shows a disconnected pancreatic duct. So as a result of his pancreatitis, he had basically blown apart his whole pancreas. So he had a good side on the right. His left side was completely disconnected from the, from the right. And he was having severe pain from this. And his request was, I just want to get back to work. Okay, I can't work. So these are all three patients that, that have come and kind of in the context of the, of the talk that we're going to give about a hopeless disease. This is what, what we deal with all the time. So the objectives of the talk are to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology and genetics of, of chronic pancreatitis, talk about what TPIAT is and, and our Dartmouth experience, talk about how we got to this point and what I consider the ultimate in interventional gastroenterology. And then finally, you know, does the rule reward of treating these patients excuse the risk, which, which we'll get into in just a second. So let's take a little step back to the pathophysiology. So chronic pancreatitis, for those of you who don't know, is been defined to me as a hopeless disease. And this definition comes from really the god of chronic pancreatitis, who's David Whitcomb at the University of Pittsburgh. And he's lectured here, actually gave this lecture here several years ago. And again, 
he describes as right there, a hopeless irreversible condition leading to progressive pancreatic inflammation and fibrosis. I don't tell my patients when they come to me, this is the definition of this disease, but this is what I'm thinking when they come. This is an extraordinarily difficult, difficult problem for patients. Um, this is a very complicated slide. I'm sorry to do this to you so early on a Friday morning. Uh, but one of my issues I face oftentimes and my patients face is that they're often told that their chronic pancreatitis is due to excess alcohol use. And in some patients, it probably is. Um, but I can tell you that that is the minority of patients whom we see. And most of these patients have all sorts of different other reasons why they have chronic pancreatitis. I'm not going to go into this in depth. But just to make the point early on that patients with chronic pancreatitis are not all alcoholics. And I think that's a, a message that really needs to be sent uh, loud and clear. There are many different pathways which patients can get to with chronic pancreatitis, including multiple genetic pathways, hypertriglyceridemia, various toxins. But at the end of the day, what happens to these patients is they get activations of stellate cells, which are cells in the pancreas which cause fibrosis. When those cells get overactivated, they cause fibrosis in the pancreas, and that's what causes patients to have have chronic pancreatitis. They get dense fibrosis in their pancreas, causes neuropathy in their pancreas, causes pancreatic excrement insufficiency, and that's what leads to the problem. So don't memorize this clearly, but just take away the fact that this is a complex process which we haven't figured out completely, but not all your patients with chronic pancreatitis are alcoholics. Very important message. So let's talk about the genes. I mentioned some of the genes already in two of my patients who I presented. When we think about the pancreas acinar cell, this goes back to medical school or nursing school, what we think about, there are two different parts of the pancreas. There's the acinar cells, which are up here represented in purple. These are the cells that produce pancreatic enzymes. So pancreatic enzymes are really important to digest your food. They're made in the acinar cells. So pancreatic acinar cells make pancreatic enzymes. Then you have the ductal cells. And the ductal cells, the main role of the ductal cells is to make bicarbonate. So when you eat, food gets in your stomach. It's acidified. It passes into your small intestine. Right in the second portion of your small intestine, your duodenum, the ductal cells are releasing bicarbonate to alkalinize that, that food bolus out of the stomach so that you can make um, appropriate digest digestion moving forward. So it's really important when we talk about the pancreas and talk about the genetics, this can be influenced in the acinar cells. Okay, and these are all the genes and problems that can happen in the acinar cell. And then in the ductal cell, which makes bicarbonate. And these are all the problems that can happen down in the, in the ductal cell. So I'm going to talk about two of these genes, the PRSS1 gene and the CFTR gene. So first of all, the diseases of the pancreatic acidus. Again, the aster cells are those, that part of the cell that makes a digestive enzymes. These are trypsin-modulating genes located on chromosome 7. The PRSS1 gene, which I mentioned, this is a gene that enhances activation so that when we eat, what happens is trypsin, which is the major driver of pancreatic enzyme uh, stimulation in the pancreas, Trypsin is, is activated, and what happens is, is that if that's activated within the pancreas, that can lead to pancreatic inflammation, which can lead to this fibrosis, which can lead to chronic pancreatitis. So the PRSS gene is a gene that prevents this from happening within the pancreas. So when this is mutated, trypsin stays active in the pancreas, which leads to fibrosis. There's another gene called the SPINK1 gene, which we found, which also has a very similar process uh, as, to, as, as the PRSS1 gene. So there's two genes that affect uh, the pancreas uh, acinar cells and cause these cells to stay activated and cause patients to develop chronic pancreatitis. And this is kind of a classic pedigree that you see 
in patients who have the PRSS1 mutation. It's an autosomal dominant mutation, and this is passed down from generation to generation to generation. So these are patients you see who come in, they're 12, 11 years old, and they come in and, and they usually come in with their parent, usually one parent because one of their parents has died of pancreatic cancer or one of their relatives has died of pancreatic cancer, and they say, yeah, I have pancreatitis, my dad or mom died of pancreatic cancer. My aunt and uncle have pancreatitis. This is the pedigree that you see. So this is an autosomal dominant process that occurs in uh, multiple generations. So this is the PRSS1 uh, mutation. 80% of these patients who have this have one episode of acute pancreatitis. 50% of the patients who have this gene develop chronic pancreatitis. And the median age of onset is 10 years old. So I see patients, I'm an adult gastroenterologist, I see patients who are 11, 12, 7 years old coming in with this problem with PRSS1 mutations. And the problem with this is this last part here, is that we think the risk of developing pancreatic cancer in your lifetime, if you have one of these mutations, is as high as 40%, okay? So this can literally be a death sentence to almost half the people who have this gene mutation. So let's shift gears and now talk about the genes that affect the ductal system, and the CFTR gene, which everyone in this audience knows, the cystic fibrosis gene, is the most common genetic defect in Caucasians. It was found in 1989. There have been multiple different mutations found in the CFTR gene affecting things like synthesis, maturation, trafficking, et cetera. 70% of the patients have the Delta F508 mutation. And we think about cystic fibrosis, right? We think about children who have lung disease, who have a poor prognosis. It's getting obviously better, but have a poor prognosis because of their lung disease. But what we know is that the CFGR gene not only affects the lungs, but it also affects other organs, the pancreas, the vas deferens, uh, vas deferens, sinus disease. So I have plenty of patients who have cystic fibrosis-related disorders who don't have any problem in their lungs, but have chronic pancreatitis because they don't have the ability to get rid of bicarbonate out of their pancreas, which causes problems uh, with chronic pancreatitis. So I have a lot of these patients. So there's basically two phenotypes when it comes to cystic fibrosis. There's patients who are born with a terrible cystic fibrosis mutation that causes an early presentation of failure to thrive. They have significant lung disease. And they don't have any pancreatitis because their pancreas, they're born agenic. They don't have a pancreas. And for those of you guys who take care of patients with cystic fibrosis who come in with a flare, you write them for their enzymes, right? But you're always writing them for their pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, their creon, because they're born without a pancreas. They have pancreatic insufficiency. The patients I see have a mutation, one of those 1600, that doesn't affect their lungs or maybe mildly affects their lungs, but causes them to have recurrent bouts of, of pancreatitis. So I see many patients with cystic fibrosis related disorder who do not have lung disease but have chronic or recurrent acute pancreatitis, just like the first two patients I presented in, in the talk. So that's just like a little baseline on, um, on pathophysiology and genetics. Um, but let's talk about TPIAT, and what is TPIAT, and what do we do? So again, I see these patients. They come in. They've been to a lot of different places, or maybe they're seeing me for the first time, and they have this horrible disease. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I have a 10-year-old, I have a 12-year-old, I have a 25- or 30-year-old patient. They have this hopeless problem with chronic pancreatitis. And why is it so difficult? Because patients with chronic pancreatitis, the major symptom is severe unremitting pain. It is a terrible pain. It is a pain that oftentimes cannot be controlled with, with any type of therapy. And I'll talk about that in just a second. This pain is horrific for patients to have. So in 90% of patients, their major complaint is that they have severe unremitting pain. And so when 
patients come in with chronic pancreatitis, what we try to do is mitigate their pain in several ways. And the algorithm that we all follow is to go from a least aggressive to a more aggressive um, situation. So what, the first thing we do is if they're drinking alcohol or smoking, we say stop doing that. If they're taking a medication that could potentially be causing that, we say stop doing that. Unfortunately, obviously, we can't do much about their genetics. Then we start getting into analgesics. You know, we start with gabapentin. We start with Lyrica. We try NSAIDs. But oftentimes, that's nowhere near enough to help these patients. And unfortunately, many of these patients end up on opiates, and medical cannabis is something that I use quite a bit. Um, so we try analgesics. We look for ways to block the neurologic transmission from their pancreas to their central nervous system by doing things like celiac plexus blocks, which we do a lot under endoscopic ultrasound. The anesthesiologists do this as well. Doesn't work that well in chronic pancreatitis. We look, oops, sorry. We look for, oops. We look for ways to try to decrease the amount of pressure in the pancreas. Dr. Gordon is going to talk later in our conference about endoscopic means of trying to decompress the pancreas. Um, can oftentimes get rid of ductal obstructions. But at the end of the algorithm, at the very bottom, is taking out the patient's pancreas. And if you think about that, that's, that's, that's almost crazy, right? We're taking out someone's pancreas. You know, this is an organ, unlike the appendix, that you really need to function, all right? So, but that comes at the end of the algorithm. We take out people's pancreas. And what are the consequences when you take out someone's pancreas? Well, two things happen immediately. First of all, they can't digest their food. They're reliant on pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy immediately. So for the rest of their lives, they're going to have to take anywhere from 10 to 15 pills a day to help digest their food. Okay, that's what you're condemning those patients to. But more importantly, and I think more dangerously, and I see many members of the endocrinology section here, these patients immediately, immediately become diabetic. And it's not a diabetes that's a type 1 or a type 2 that can be controllable. This is essentially uncontrollable diabetes, what we call type 3C diabetes, in which not only do they not have any insulin, but they also don't have counter-regulatory hormones like glucagon to counterbalance that. So this is essentially a completely uncontrollable diabetes. It drives patients and the providers really crazy because you can't control their diabetes. So when you take out someone's pancreas, this is what you're doing to them, okay, immediately, the second it comes out. So what is the TPIT? What are we doing here? Well, essentially what we're doing is we're taking out the bad parts of the pancreas. We're removing the entire pancreas. Out it comes. But instead of just throwing that pancreas away, what we're doing is we're digesting out the good parts of the pancreas, meaning the islet of Langerhans, that part of the pancreas, the endocrine function that provides insulin, that provides glucagon, and many of the other hormones, and we're putting that back into the patient. We're giving that patient back those enzymes. So out comes the pancreas, and rather than just throw it away, we put those cells, we isolate those cells, we put those back in the pancreas. And the goal is to try to take out the bad parts of the pancreas and preserve the endocrine function of the pancreas so they don't have horrible diabetes. Kind of crazy. So um, this procedure has been around since 1977. I'm sorry the brightness is a little bit off. It's kind of um, skewing this a little bit. But this has been around since 1977. It was first described uh, at the University of Minnesota by um, Nigerian and Sutherland, who are really gods of, this, of this, um, this process. And how they came to this was that one of the holy grails for endocrinologists is to be able to do allotransplant of islet cells, is be able to take cadaveric islet cells, isolate them, and then inject them into folks as an allotransplant uh, to try to prevent diabetes. What these folks did is rather than do an allotransplant, they did an autotransplant. They took patients' own pancreas islet cells, um, isolated them, and then placed them back into the, uh, into the patient's pancreas. So this was around in 1977. 
And over the years, for a variety of different reasons, this has not taken off. It probably mostly has to do with the inability to effectively isolate the islet cells. And also patient selection was a really, really difficult issue. So this kind of went out of favor. In the late, late 70s, early 80s, a few places were doing this, but then it kind of went out of favor. But we know from the few studies we have, and I'm sorry this doesn't show up that well, but this is a study from the University of Minnesota and where they looked at patients with hereditary pancreatitis, genetic pancreatitis, and they looked at patients' pain patterns. So this was the patient presence of pain. Here's percentage-wise. This is the years after TPIAT. And you can see one year, two year, all the way up to 10 years. The data was only available when this study was published. Um, this was published in 2014. They only had 10 patients who had been 10 years out from TPIAT. But you can see that it seemed like at the University of Minnesota that pain was improving. The other thing they looked at was the number of patients who were dependent on insulin, because that's what we're trying to do is prevent insulin dependence. And this was the same group of patients. And what you found at about 10 years is that about 10% of patients, excuse me, 30% of patients were insulin dependent. Some had minimal insulin use. And then some, 10 years after having their pancreas taken out, did not require any insulin. Okay, so it was about a third, a third, a third as far as your ability to predict what patients would need insulin uh, after the surgery. So when I came back here in 2008, I, I was out in Minnesota, and, and I was at Mayo Clinic. And um, Mayo Clinic did not do this procedure, but we were about 70 miles south of the University of Minnesota, which was doing this quite a bit. And we used to send our patients up to Minneapolis, which I think created a little consternation, you know, sending them out of, out of the Mayo Clinic. Um, but I, I became familiar with this procedure there. And when I returned back... Um, in 2008, I sent two or three patients out to the University of Minnesota to have this done. And uh, they came back and they did fairly well. And what we found at that time was there were only a few centers that were doing this uh, nationally. So these are the centers highlighted. And what you can see is there's a big empty spot here in the Northeast. There was no one in the Northeast who was doing uh, auto islet cell transplant. So over the course of 2008, 2009, and, and we'll talk about the support we got, we decided that we wanted to go ahead and, and do islet cell transplants here because I got tired of going to my patients' pig roasts and spending money to try to raise their money so they could go out to Minnesota and live out there for six months. And you know, I said, we've got to be able to do a better job and have these patients, patients stay here. So um, with a tremendous amount of support, uh, we came up with the idea to go ahead and do our uh, our uh, TPIATs here. Now, the issue was is that for years and years and years, we could go ahead and we could take people's pancreases out here at Dartmouth, and, and the surgeons here are absolutely incredible, and they could take them out. The problem is, is that we did not have the ability to isolate those cells. That's a complex thing to be able to do. So the place that could isolate the cells, which wasn't doing this procedure, was down in Boston at Mass General. So we came up with this crazy idea that we could actually do the surgery here. We could go ahead and take out the people's pancreases, keep the patients here, drive the pancreas down Route 89 to 93 to Boston, where they would get their pancreas isolated, like literally in an igloo cooler, and then the patient would stay here in the operating room, eating up oh, valuable OR time doing nothing. And... Um, then once the four or five hour process of isolation occurred, that pancreas would be driven back to Dartmouth. And once they hit the Route 93 at the New Hampshire mass border, a call would be made to get ready. The islets are coming in an hour and 15 minutes. And they would come back, and they would get the islets reinfused into the patient. So it's crazy, right? But it's something we did. And you can think about all the logistics. Think about the indemnity. Like, who's responsible if there's a car crash? Who's responsible if, you know, the Route 89 is shut down. What do you do if there's a predicted snowstorm coming that morning? We dealt with all these issues, right? 
But eventually, we found out, we found a patient who would do this. So our first patient um, was actually a carpenter from central Vermont who came in with acute pancreatitis. And just like that third patient I showed you, he'd basically blown his pancreas apart. He had a little piece of pancreas over on the left side that was causing a major, major problem. So the idea was, we're going to need to take this pancreas out. Why don't we, instead of just throwing it away, why don't we go ahead and do this, do this process for him? So... This is the patient's CT scan. So again, this side of his pancreas, the right side of his pancreas looked good. In the middle, there was this whole no man's land, so to speak. And way out here in the tail was a nice functioning pancreas that was causing him lots of problems because the pancreatic enzymes were getting caught, causing him a lot of pain. So this was our first patient. And I presented this before and showed you guys this, but on May 2nd, 2012, this was our first patient at Dartmouth. So he came in. And Dr. Smith and Dr. Axelrod uh, took out the back side of his pancreas, the left side of his pancreas. And this is those images from here. And this is it coming out. This is the spleen here. And this is the, uh, the disconnected uh, pancreas here. The pancreas was back table, basically prepared, basically put in a cooler. Um, patient stayed in the operating room. And Dr. Axelrod had gotten his fancy car and drove it down 89 to 93. Um, and um, the patient was actually closed up and brought to the PACU. So the patient's sitting in the PACU. Now he's a major diabetic. He's, you know, not really closed. He's just kind of packed in there, and he's sitting there. Meanwhile, Dr. Axelrod uh, drops the, the cells off at Mass General. This is the restaurant picture he went to while they were doing this down the north end, okay? And what they did was they basically took that solid organ that I told you, and they digested it into this IV bag filled with islet cells. Okay, I have no idea how they did this. It was like this black box. They went and did this. And so Dr. Axelrod got back in his car and drove back, and when he reached, you know, the New Hampshire Mass Board, he called up. They brought him back from the PACU, the patient, put him in the operating room. His islet cells arrived, and basically what, where we infuse these cells is we put them in the liver where they take roots. So the portal vein was cannulated, and this is, you can't see this maybe that well, but these are the little islet cells going in the catheter into the portal vein. We measure the portal pressures because we're scared of portal vein thrombosis. And the patient closed at 11.30 p.m., so starting at 9.30. Now it's, you know, 11.30, 14 hours later, everyone's tired. And the patient did great, okay? The patient did great. He was discharged on post-op day five. He had no diabetes. He was a young 33-year-old guy. He did fantastic. And this is, you know, the OR crew that we took the picture. This is like at midnight, and I'm in there, like, probably touching things I shouldn't have because I'm the internist, you know. <laughs> Nurses are yelling at me about, the, you know. But the guy did great. And, um, you know, as you can imagine, like, this is the list of folks who, who, who helped us do this. And so, you know, we had the gastroenterologist, an amazing support. We had our awesome endocrinology team um, who did this, our OR staff, our anesthesiologist, transplant surgery, surgical oncology. And you see all these names, and... Our administration was fantastic. You know, we have lots of administrators. Dan Jansen's here, who's been a huge supporter um, of this process in the beginning. And, and, but you can think about doing this, okay? You can think about what we did. We, we, we kept a patient here. We moved his pancreas. We spent 14 hours with him, with him sitting here. Um, but we did it. And after we did that, from 2012 to 2015, the word got out that we could do this. So we started to get a lot of referrals for patients to come here to do this. And we saw about 56 people. When we first did our first procedure, that was a partial pancreatectomy. We actually did total pancreatectomies where patients came in, we took out their whole pancreas. And you can't see that well enforced, but this is a map of New England. So we had patients from Maine, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, Vermont, New York, um, New Hampshire, obviously. So we had a lot of patients coming in for this, okay? And 
I used to stay awake at night so nervous about this process because you worry about what happens as that pancreas is going down to, to Massachusetts. And we did well. You know, these are the patients from insulin independent, you know, out two years that most of them were insulin independent when they came in. About a third of them ended up insulin independent, which is consistent with uh, the Minnesota data. Their morphine equivalents went down, so their pain got improved. This was, this was going great. But the problem was, as you can imagine, this was a problem, right? We had too many moving parts. It wasn't sustainable. It takes too much time, and it costs too much, okay? By the time we did this, Mass General was costing us, charging us $55,000 to do this, okay, and we weren't getting reimbursed for that. That was just for the islet cell isolation. So what happened? How are we gonna do this? So the next part, the ultimate in interventional GI. So obviously, you know, as I told you guys, I'm not a basic scientist, I'm just like a dumb clinician, right? Um, I had to, we had to learn how to do this. We had to pull back the curtain. How do you isolate these islet cells? So in order to do this, we needed to figure out, we needed a knowledgeable and dedicated partner we needed to find a sterile equipment, an environment where we could do this. We needed money, and we needed support to do this. So first of all, we had a knowledgeable and dedicated partner. So through a lot of connections, we were able to meet up with Johns Hopkins. And Johns Hopkins was doing this, and they were very willing to kind of, quote, unquote, teach us how to do this. So we made multiple trips down to Baltimore for them to teach us how to do this. And I give them an amazing amount of credit to helping us out. Um, we needed a sterile environment equipment. To have your own islet lab costs millions of dollars to set up, and it has to be incredibly sterile. And we thought about this, and how can we get an area that's sterile, uh, such a really sterile environment? We thought about, well, we have 27 of them right here at Dartmouth. We have 27 ORs, the absolutely most sterile environment. So we decided, rather than having our own dedicated islet lab, we could do this all in the uh, OR. And this is what Johns Hopkins did. So our sterile environment became OR14, and that's where we did this. And we got all this fancy equipment, we got startup money. We had a very generous donation from a patient of mine and Dr. Smith, uh, Walter and Carol Young, who gave us the money to buy the equipment to do this isolation. And we got support. And I can't say enough. Even though you know, we, we didn't have any protected time, we had extensive financial support from medicine, surgery, and the senior leadership. And I can't say enough how, how, how great it was. You know, I gave this talk, I remember, three or four years ago to the Board of Trustees. And one of the trustees asked me, well, why don't you, why don't you just send the patient down to Boston? And I said, so I, I didn't know what to say. And I said, because we're Dartmouth, you know? I went to Dartmouth College, you know? What did we do because we're Dartmouth? So we had, we had to go ahead and, and put together an islet cell team, and this is what we had. We had the surgeon, chief of surgical oncology, Kerry Smith, who all of a sudden became an islet cell transplant specialist. We had me, a therapeutic endoscopist, endoscopist who's all of a sudden cutting up pancreases in the OR, okay? We had Katie Darling, who used to be our GI practice manager, who took over and did all the insurance negotiation coordinating. We had our islet cell lead technician, Dawn, who's sitting right here, who's fantastic, who's a surgical tech uh, oncologist, who all of a sudden became an expert at islet cell transplant. And Kristen Sprayer, who's, I don't know if she's here, she's one of our endoscopy technicians, all of a sudden she became an amazing islet cell technician in the OR. So we had to kind of jerry-rig the system, but we got it done. So we made multiple trips to Baltimore, and then you need your first patient. Like, who's going to be the first patient who all of a sudden you say, we're going to do this first on you? And we had the perfect patient. We had one of Dr. Rothstein's patients, okay? This is a 109-pound uh, Yorkshire cross pig, um, and we basically learned how to do this on pigs, okay? So we did a pig or two, I think, to, to learn how to isolate uh, up here in the pig lab. And then we contracted with the New England Organ Bank uh, because they had rejected pancreas. We started practicing on patients who had cadaveric pancreases that were rejected for transplant, so we started to do that. 
And then we needed our first human patient. And again, what we did was we did a patient who had a disconnected pancreatic duct, and we did it here, and everything went well. So I'm pulling back the curtain. How do you do this? Okay, so what you do is you do a total pancreatectomy. I don't do a total pancreatectomy, but the surgeons do. You take out the pancreas, okay? And then what you do is you usually get two separate pieces in the head of the tail, and then the clock is going. Cold ischemia time does matter, so you got to hustle. Okay, you got to go ahead and you got to get this thing isolated. So this is Dr. Smith, who you're going to hear about here from later, and this is me, like banging into things in the OR, you know, basically trying to isolate the pancreas. Okay, so what you do is you get the samples on ice quickly. You try to cannulate the veins and the arteries, the GDA and the splenics, and you flush it with SPS or lactated ringer solution. You trim off the excess fat, and then you cannulate the pancreatic duct. So this is what the pancreas looks like: the head and the tail. It's all cleaned up. You've got catheters in both sides of it. Okay. So this is really important to do this quickly. And then what you do is you want to flush enzymes to try to digest the pancreas. So what you want to do is separate out those islet cells. And this is what we use. And this is the most important step. We really literally just isolate these enzymes and inject the, inject the pancreas to get those enzymes out in the pancreas. And then we cut it up. We just cut it up like cube stick. We cut the whole pancreas up in a, in a tin, just like this. And we put it in this thing called the recorde chamber, which basically shakes it up. And um, it's warm to body temperature. This horizontal and vertical shaking occurs. And every two to five minutes, we take out samples to see if we're getting islet cells. And this is like the highlight of my talk. All right, so this is what it looks like, all right? So Dawn, this is Dawn right here. And basically, this is the recording chamber. It's shaking it up. So what's happening is, the, is the, it's shaking up. The, and that's Dr. Smith in the background. So this is what happens. The pancreas is being shaken up mechanically and enzymatically digested. So once we're doing this every two to five minutes, what we're doing is we're looking at the islet cells, and this is what we see. This is excrement pancreatic tissue, and these are the islet cells. These are the holy grail that we're looking at. And once we're sure that we have enough of these, and this is what it looks like, then we go ahead and we stop the digestion. Okay, so these are beautiful-looking islet cells. This is what we're looking for. And then the last part of the process, we collect these. Dawn does a wonderful job spinning these down, putting them in albumin, putting them in this bag, and these are injected back into the patient's liver where they grow. And this process takes about three to four hours to do. And this is the report that we get, okay? So this is what Dawn puts together. This talks about all the different particles we get. The holy grail is the island equivalents per kilogram. That's what we're looking for to see how many of these islet cells we get per kilogram in the patient. So the advantage of this was that now we could do this at high volumes. We had less moving parts. We were totally uncontrolled, took less time, and it cost much less. We were able to bring this from $55,000 to $11,000. So we were able to make more of an access to our, to our patients. And as a result, our experience now has been that we have a website. So we have a website where patients can go and learn about the pancreas center. Sorry this isn't coming out well, but this is on the website. They can learn about auto islet cell transplants. We have lots of studies, and our GI research group is fantastic, and Sushela has, has led one of our, our major studies here looking at this. Um, and we have a whole thing about our clinical team. So patients can go on the web and, and, and see all this. And again, this is not coming out well, but now we're having more and more patients. Patients are coming in to have this done as far as, as I said, Indiana. We've evaluated patients from California, patients from out of sea, South Africa, uh, Belgium have all come. So the question is, does the reward excuse the risk? Like, how good are we at this, okay? Because what I'm essentially saying is when those patients come to me and they are going through this, and I'm looking at that 16-year-old kid and I'm saying, am I going to put you on opiates for the rest of your life? What we're doing is we're changing the paradigm so that now, rather than starting with the parenchyma, or rather than taking out the pancreas way down here, we're moving it up here, okay? And is this appropriate? 
So the indications for this are patients with chronic pancreatitis that's painful, refractory recurrent acute pancreatitis, or patients who are going to need part of their pancreas taken out and are at a high risk of diabetes. Um, and our thought is that we should never throw away benign pancreatic tissue. We should always do an islet cell in these patients. So what we do is we have a, a multidisciplinary group that meets. It's myself, it's Carrie Smith, Rick Farrell from psychiatry, Sushila, um, pain management, before Gil left, um, and then we have nutrition. And we all meet, and we go over these indications here, documented chronic pancreatitis. We make sure we exclude other, other causes. We make sure we exclude uh, other things that can be done. Um, these are the contraindications, so alcoholism, cancer, end-stage disease, poorly controlled psychiatric illness, et cetera. And um, we go ahead and we meet and we decide if these patients are patients who should have this done. And the challenges are this, of this are when do we do this for patients, reimbursement issues, and really the lack of long-term outcome data. Because for me, the key for this is identifying patients early and balancing that with doing a major irreversible intervention. Once you do this, you can't have it back. Once you do this to a 16-year-old boy, that patient's yours for life. Um, so you've got to make sure you're right about this. And this is something that we, that we try to sort out. The other issue is that this looks at the island equivalents that you get, okay? And obviously you want the most island equivalents because that's going to prevent diabetes. And this is a, a study from the University of Minnesota. And when they, these are all patients who had islet cell transplants. And what they showed was that if at baseline you go ahead and do an islet cell transplant, they get the most island equivalents. But if you start doing things like doing a Whipple, doing a Bager, which is a partial pancreatectomy, doing a distal pancreatectomy, Pousteau, your islet yield goes down. So the point is, once you start intervening on these patients, you lose the ability to help prevent diabetes in the future if you're going to do a TPIAT. So it's almost like an all or nothing. You have to identify these patients early. And ERCP is in that, too. And we're going to come out with data, too. Once you start doing ERCPs on these patients, their islet yield subsequently goes down. Okay, so it's something that you have to do up front and early. And the reimbursement issues are key. So $3,000 is what we got for one patient from Vermont Medicaid to do this procedure. Okay, on the converse is one of our private insurers. So this is really an issue as far as insuring. But thanks to, you know, our senior leadership, including, including Dan who's in the audience, we don't limit access to patients' ability to pay, and we don't make patients fundraise for this procedure. So when we look at the ideal versus non-ideal candidates, we want patients who are not yet on opiates. Patients who are not on opiates seem to do better. We like patients have, who have recurrent acute pancreatitis as opposed to chronic pancreatitis. We like patients who have what we call amine type A pain as opposed to amine type B pain. Type B pain is chronic severe pain that never waxes and wanes. It's always there. Amine type A pain is pain that goes like this. And what that suggests is that they don't have a central nervous issue with their pain at that point. So we like type A pain. We like genetic etiologies as opposed to an uh, idiopathic etiology. And we like patients who have less than five years symptoms as opposed to greater than 10 years of symptoms. But the biggest challenges for, for us are identifying the appropriate patient and selecting when we go ahead and do this, do this for a patient. I'm sorry you can't see this, but again, these are some of the things you get. This is from a 10-year-old girl whose dad had a TPIAT, and you can see, thank you for fixing my dad. You saved my heart, H-A-R-T-E from breaking, B-R-A-K-I-N-G. This is like something my 16-year-old son would write, but that's another story. Um, so TPI is directed at DHMC. Um, again, another thing, I would like to add a big thank you for everyone here at DHMC for taking wonderful care of me. So these are patients who have had a TPIT, but this is anecdotal stuff, right? We don't have good long-term outcomes, which is what we need. Um, so I will say that we haven't helped everyone. There's patients who we've done this for, we've given them diabetes, and we haven't helped their pain much, and that's not a good thing. 
So we have not helped everyone. Fortunately, that's very few and far between. Many of our patients, when they have this done, are left with severe dysmotility. We don't understand why this happens to patients, but it's something that we're trying to sort out. Um, and some of our patients do have the need for chronic opiates after we've done this. Not many, but a few. We're trying to sort this out. This is a big NIH study that we're part of called the POST study. It's an R01, $8 million study, trying to figure out the factors which make this a better procedure for people. So we're part of that, and that's led by the University of Minnesota. So getting back to my title, you know, have we made a difference in this hopeless disease? Well, I think we have had incredible successes with some of our patients. Um, we also have some patients, honestly, who I don't think we've helped much with this procedure, and we're really in need of long-term data and establishment predictors of uh, success. So just to finish up here in the last few minutes, um, let's go back to our cases, okay? So this is our first, or excuse me, our third patient. This is our farmer from central Vermont who had disconnected pancreatic duct, and he was actually the first patient that we ever did, um, all here, and he did great. So he underwent the first uh, totally Dartmouth auto islet cell transplant and is back to work working on his farm. He just turned over his herd to his son uh, three days ago, or excuse me, th uh, about three months ago, and that's been upsetting to him, um, but he is back working on the farm, which is great. Um, this is our 33-year-old who flew out here from central Indiana um, and uh, came out because Dartmouth was his last hope, never been on a plane before. And he got his auto island cell, I believe, to show what, in July? Yeah. Uh, spent uh, about 10 days in the hospital and then left and drove back to Indiana um, and uh, has doing great. He underwent TPIT in July, is back home, he's recovering off of opiates. This is a guy who was two feet dependent and had no life. So now he's doing, he's doing much better. And the last patient is our 16-year-old, okay, from Concord. And if we have time, which I think we do, I want to show you guys uh, this video. And I'm not savvy enough because I'm over the age of 40 to embed this in my talk. Uh, but I want to show you this YouTube video. And this is, they've given us, obviously, permission to show this. <coughs> Let me just show this. This is the patient. I'm 17 years old. I'm from Concord, New Hampshire. And I had a total pancreatectomy with an islet cell transplant on February 23rd, 2015. And Joseph's mom. Always the worry about him is today another day he's going to go in the hospital and have a two-week visit. After meeting with the, Dr. Gardner, he explained everything that was going on. We were just so grateful that we were able to connect with him and the team, speak with everybody, learn everything about what the surgery um, entailed and you know nothing was left out either. The risks, the benefits. The fact that there was a surgery to maybe help me and that's all I really needed to say, yeah, let's do it. I was very nervous about it because I'd never had anything done like this before. I was in the hospital for three weeks after the surgery. I had the feeding tube for about two months at home, but after that, it was great. I feel fantastic. I can eat anything I want, really, and not have to worry about having this horrible pain in my stomach or having to go to the hospital. I'm able to stay in school. I can play sports with my friends. He's just feeling great. He's looking great. And he's able to participate in anything he wants to. He has no limitations. And that's just a feeling that we've never been able to enjoy. And uh, we haven't had to go to the hospital since. Uh, his surgery. And we're thrilled. If I had the chance to do it all over again, I absolutely would. Sorry about that. So, uh, again, I don't like anecdotes as much as, you know, with a researcher, but um, certainly that's a pretty amazing story for, for Joe. And that's, this is, you know, Joe's, Joe's history. Um, 
So with that, uh, I'm done. And, but before I finish, I just want to really say thank you to an amazing group of people, um, especially uh, these two up here, uh, who either of whom could have given this talk. And we all know Sue Sheila, and she has been an absolute rock star and unbelievable resource for us. Uh, so thank you. And uh, Carrie Smith, who many of you know, uh, Chief of Surgical Oncology, who literally is just an amazing person. And it's his background in immunology, which has allowed us to get this lab up and running. And either of them could have, could have given the talk. And then just to thank uh, Kat Gear-Rice, who is our uh, nutritionist, um, Kim Sainsbury, who's our pancreas nurse and coordinator, who does an amazing job. And you guys all know Gil, who retired and got us up and running. And then Rick Farrell from psychiatry, who evaluates all these patients. It really is a, is a labor, but I think a labor of love. And with that, I would like to stop. So thank you very much. So we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great question. The question was, is there is there a way to make if you don't get a great yield, is there a way to go ahead and make them proliferate? Not that I know of. I, I may be maybe wrong, um, but you know we're under the gun when we get these, and we we don't like to to get rid of them at all. But your point's well taken. Could we take a few of the cells and and save them, and then go ahead and, and replant the? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a it's a great question, um, and, and something we should we should look into. But not that I know of. Yeah. There. Tim Bridcock, as always. But yeah. I'm assuming everybody needs going to pancreatic enzymes for the rest of their life. Is that going to be the most very expensive? Is that uh, don't get me started on that. Um, yes. So, so pancreatic enzymes um, are extremely expensive, and um, the average uh, dose cost per month, I would say, is probably about a thousand to twelve hundred dollars per month for the rest of their lives. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's a major backstory to that, but but essentially that's that's the that's the cost. Yeah. Yeah, John. Um, <clears throat> what about cadaveric islet cells? What's the downside? Yeah, it's great. So so this all started, you know, cadaveric um, allotransplants. This is where it all came from, and that you know the endocrinology group could probably speak more to this than I could, but um, that was a major push in the 70s, 80s, up in 90s, really. And uh, the problem with it is, is that although you could isolate the cells really well and you could combine multiple cadaveric islets for multiple different people, the immune system just destroyed them. And that was the problem. So you could get them, you could isolate them, you could get them in patients, they would do well for what a period of weeks to months, and then the immune system would just destroy them. And there wasn't a way to shut down the immune system enough to allow that to work. So I think that's pretty much done at this point as far as an avenue of, of research. But um, that would be the holy grail for, for diabetics to be able to do that. Okay, well, thank you all very much for, for coming. <laughs>